take your copy of God's Word and turn to Romans 12. Uh, intended to actually write a Thanksgiving sermon. It never actually happened. That's what this was supposed to be. It somehow morphed into something different along the way. It's kind of fun. <clears throat> Romans 12, 3 through 8. And just in terms of personal testimony before you go, uh, chapter, I mean, uh, 12, 3, verse 3, I think has probably shaped my personal philosophy of church service more than any other verse in the Bible. Uh, this is one of my favorites, uh, and it, uh, I, I try to have it shape me. Hopefully, God will use it and shape us all together. Four. By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who contributes in giving generously. Sorry, in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak, that we might hear. We talked about this in Sunday school today, how we don't receive our justification until the Holy Spirit comes and applies the work of Christ to us. Likewise, we do not receive understanding and illumination until the Holy Spirit comes in upon us and helps us to understand the words of Christ. We ask that you would speak through your scriptures, through the work of your Holy Spirit, that we might see Jesus, that we might see ourselves correctly, that we might find freedom in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Sorry, got the new microphone and it is not working right. There we go. We stand at a bit of a crossroads as a nation. If you look at what's taking place in our culture currently, we are at a major crossroads. Uh, Particularly the last three weeks, I would say, had a, a new phase of what that crossroads looks like. And I'm not speaking specifically of, of ISIS or the refugee problem, though those are certainly impacting this. We face a bit of a national crisis in terms of identity. Who are we as Americans? What place do I have in this great nation? What voice do I have in this great nation? What identity? do I have in this great nation? And we're watching this play out right now on our universities uh, in an epic fashion as we have young African 
American men and women that feel like they have no place in this great nation, that feel like they have no voice in this great nation, where in the last month we watched a major football powerhouse, which brings in, you know, tens of millions of dollars every year, have their football team walk out until they fired the chancellor of the school. I mean, what an amazing power play that is. And the amazing thing is they actually listen, and they fired the chancellor of the school. Unbelievable. We're watching that happen. We're watching uh, in California right now Asian students protesting the favor that is shown to African-American students. You may not know this. uh, When children apply for college these days or young people apply to college these days, their SAT scores are modified. Um, depending upon your race, you have a certain number of percent or a certain number of points that are added or subtracted to your SAT score to make your race uh, account to be even. Asian students straight up have 50 points subtracted off their SAT score, whereas another racial subgroup in our uh, great country has 253 points added to theirs. So an Asian kid in California that wants to go to Harvard has to outscore their neighbor of a different ethnicity by more than three. 100 points out of 1,600 in order to get into school. Right now, there are SAT training programs and college application training programs in California, Berkeley area, that are specifically designed for Asians so that your race will not show up in your college application because they know racial bias prevents them from having a voice at the national level. Can you imagine that, being a 10th grade kid? Already having aced your SAT or come close to it and knowing you don't have a shot to get into Harvard because you are Asian. You play the violin and your national story is how your parents came over and immigrated and joined, became citizens the generation previous to you. We we are at a national crisis of trying to figure out who has a voice, how they have a voice, and how will we play nicely all together. Then you throw in the refugee crisis on top of it, and you watch polarizing politics just blow up, right? Some politicians are saying, we will receive no one. And others are like, bring everybody in, and we can't figure out who we are. If you think about it, that's actually a very similar place to where the early church was, and certainly around the time that this is written. They're in a bit of a crisis in trying to figure out who will have a voice in the church and what will their identity be, right? You have the Jews who, by and large, have massive amounts of, of like book knowledge. They've studied the Old Testament. Remember, for your bar mitzvah, your bat mitzvah, you memorized basically the first five books of the Bible, Kind of very useful for once you get the right framework to understand who Jesus is. So you bring a massive body of knowledge. The problem that is even as they brought that body of knowledge, they were not yet able to discern what things were just Jewish culture and what things were commanded in the Bible. And so they don't know what to do with circumcision. They can't figure that out. They can't fully figure out what to do with the Passover. They're not entirely sure on some of those just classic Jewish customs. How do we handle the Sabbath? We know it still binds us to but are we allowed to walk more than twice the distance to the temple? What are we allowed to do? They can't figure it out. Meanwhile, the Gentiles, having no knowledge, coming in and being converted and only knowing what their church planter told them in the three months or three weeks that he was there, and then having to try to figure out how to run the church on three weeks of knowledge. I mean, let's be honest. Let's think about it. If, If Paul preached a sermon a day for three weeks straight and then left and we had to run the church with only that much knowledge, how successful would we be? 
Right? This would be tremendously problematic on all fronts, and the church is trying to figure out how do we understand the nature of the church? Who has a voice? Who has a say? How do we play nicely? How do we interact with all of the diversity and all of the difficulty? How do we exist together? Also happens to be wonderfully helpful on a Thanksgiving week because many of us will ask the same question of our families this week, won't we? How do we figure out how to all get along together even for the brief time that we will be there? Okay, that doesn't apply to your family, I'm sure, maybe. We're going to see a couple of principles here in the text. I just pulled out three. There's plenty here, but we're going to look at it kind of in verse 3, then verse 4 and 5, and then 6 through 8. The first principle is God's redeeming grace empowers us, enables us, and empowers us to think accurately. God's redeeming grace empowers us to think accurately. This is verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And you think about where this is coming in the scriptures. Uh, this book here, Romans, is basically uh, a giant apology. And not an I'm sorry apology, but this is why you should listen to me apology. Paul is heading to Rome, and he wants, when he gets there, he wants them to listen. He knows that it will be good for them to listen to him, and so he has basically given them a resume of why they should stop talking and listen to Paul. And it's an amazing resume, isn't it? I wish my resume looked like that. It's phenomenal. And in the first 11 chapters, he takes up one theme. Why should you listen to Paul? Because Paul knows the gospel. And in those first 11 chapters, he gives us the most glorious, the most technical, the most academically brilliant summary of the gospel in human history. Nothing has ever surpassed the first 11 chapters of Romans in its depth and breadth and just the beautiful quality in which it explains the work of Jesus. His themes build on one another. He starts laying out the power of the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? Let me tell you about it. And he says, well, the gospel is this, that God is a just judge and will destroy all of his enemies. And the problem is that all people are his enemies. All have sinned and fallen short of his glory. All are against him. All will be judged. And there is no hope for salvation apart from him. He builds that, Roman 2, 3, 4, that big, just burden, crushing burden. There is no hope for salvation apart from God. And then chapter 5, it changes. But God, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and introduces a new theme that while we were lost, not while we were righteous, not while we were good, not while we were great, but while we were lost, traitors, Slaves to sin in bondage. While we were on death row living the crimes that we had committed, while we were the worst of it, then God stepped in and changed us. And he did it in one particular and radical fashion to send his only begotten and beloved son to the cross. For him to take the death penalty that I had earned millions of times over, 
I should have received it over and over and over and over again for all eternity. And Jesus took that instead. And therefore, nothing can shake that sure salvation of God. He builds this beautiful portrait of the gospel until chapter 12, where it starts with, Therefore, I appeal to you, brothers, therefore, and Paul builds all of his books the same way. Here's the content of something, and then here's what I want you to do with it. Chapters 1 through 11 are the content of the faith. Chapter 12 is what do I want you to do with it? And here we get the beginning part of what does he want us to do? Well, in light of the redeeming grace of God, he wants us first here to not think of ourselves more highly, but to think of ourselves with sober judgment. The key word here being think, right? The redeeming work of God is going to empower us to think differently. It's going to come in. God comes in and he takes out our old dead heart and he puts a new living one in. And he takes out our rotten will and puts a new excellent one in. And he takes out our deceived, self-deceiving worldview and puts a new mind in so that the old is gone and the new has come. Now certainly there are sinful tendencies But we're new. We're not constantly deceiving ourselves in sin. We're not hopelessly lost. We have been made new. But the problem is that even though we have been made new, we still do have lingering sin. And one of those is how we think about ourselves. How we think about our place in the world and how we think about our place in the church. In fact, actually, it's so problematic, and the early church had the same problem. Really, we're prone to going to one of two extremes. We either are prone to thinking too highly of ourselves, or prone to thinking too lowly of ourselves. One of these two extremes, and God's miraculous grace empowers us to think about ourselves accurately, in between, correctly. Right? Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Really, both ends of those are the same thing. How do, how do we do this? What does this look like? Well, those that think too highly of themselves think of their gifts as a little bit better than what they actually are. Right? They think of their gifts as being on a scale of 1 to 100. Nobody ever says they have 100. So they think that their gifts are like a 90, when in reality it's usually closer to like a 65. Right? They think that they've got this much, but in reality they have kind of this much. And we see this illustrated all of the time. If you ever watch boxing, which none of us ever do, but I'm still going to use the illustration. Because every interview with a boxer has always been the same interview. It doesn't matter who it is. It's always the same interview. You interview them before the match, and their comments are always what? I am the greatest boxer that has ever lived. And it's like, you have a losing record. You're like 4 and 36. It doesn't matter. They always think they're the greatest boxer that has ever lived. And so when that boxer enters the ring, they have this perception in their mind that they are the greatest boxer of all time. And then when they lose, it's interesting, almost always they have an excuse as to why they lost because they're still the greatest boxer of all time. It's very rare that you hear a boxer say, no, I just flat out got knocked out. 
It's usually, well, I wasn't feeling that good. I trained badly. I cut weight awful. I was dehydrated. I had the flu. You know, I had a separated shoulder. All kinds of reasons for why they're still the greatest boxer of all time. But excuses for why it doesn't work. You see, that's what's happening in the church in so many places where people are taking up their gifts and when they go to think about themselves, they think about themselves as the greatest boxer of all time, even if they have a losing record, right? I am this particular gift to God's church and I'm the greatest at the thing that I'm gifted to do, right? Young preachers are certainly never tempted with this, are we, to think about, hey, if we preach, they will come because you're the greatest preacher the church has ever seen. It happens all the time, right? Where preachers are tempted to think they're great preachers, to think too highly of themselves, to think their gifts are grievously large. I've poked fun at this before, but I love how you can take a, a um, spiritual gift inventory test, which I think are bogus anyways, uh, but you can take those spiritual gift inventory tests where it kind of gives you an idea of what you, you personally think your gifts are. And it's shocking to me how everyone thinks they have the gift of discernment. Everyone thinks that they have the ability to perceive the world correctly. Everybody thinks they are just above average in that regard. It's the same thing as if you ask a person their IQ. No one ever says, I am a 95 below average. But if you look at the math, half of us have to be that. That's what an average is. It means half of us are below it, right? We think of ourselves far too highly in terms of our abilities, or sometimes we think of ourselves far too highly in terms of our indispensability, meaning that that we're needed. And again, this is never tempting for a pastor to think, oh, this church needs me. This church needs me. And wake up, smell the roses. Does the church ever need anybody? No. If, If God lacked any resources, he could make new ones if he wanted to. Right? The second a pastor is no longer useful to me, he can kill that pastor and put a new one in place. I'm the easiest person in this church to replace. We have seminaries training hundreds of guys just like me. I am replaceable. It's easy. But yet we are so prone to do this in our own spiritual condition to try to make me be more significant in the church than I am. Can that committee function without you? I hate to say it, but yes, it can. Can the the church exist without you? Yes, it can. We are all replaceable. Every one of us. Our gifts are not unique to us. Our gifts are not so great in us that we cannot easily be replaced. In fact, actually, the gospel of grace, the Lord's redeeming work, gives us the freedom to think about ourselves accurately. I don't have to be neurotic and pretend like I am the most gifted pastor in America. I don't have to pretend like I have all of the spiritual gifts in here. And if you copy me in all of the ways that I live, then you'll look just like Jesus. I don't have to pretend. I have some spiritual gifts. That is true. I don't have others. Flat out, I don't have the gift of helps. There are some people that life goes easier when they're around because they solve all the problems and they help make life better. I'm not that guy. I don't see things that need to be done and I don't quickly jump to do them most of the time because I don't see that they need to be done. I don't have that gift. I don't have that ability. Others do. It gives me the freedom to live within my own skin and to embrace how God has made me and to be comfortable with that. 
to think of myself accurately. It gives that same thing for all of us that we can say, look, God made me a certain way. He could have made me with greater gifts. He could have made me with lower gifts. He made me with these gifts. He made me with the intelligence that I have. He made me with the body that I have. He made me with the sense of humor that I have. He made me with the gifts that I have. And there is great freedom in that. I uh, remember seen a little bit of a documentary clip not too long ago about a lady who was, she was giving a talk on confidence. She was, I don't think she was a believer. She never talked about the Lord in that regard, but she was talking about how she had been in a tragic car accident and had a traumatic brain injury and dropped her IQ by somewhere in the neighborhood of like 30 or 35 points, um, which is a lot for an IQ to drop considering your average American has like 105 Uh, she dropped probably down to 115, would be my guess, which means that her IQ beforehand was high enough to put her in Mensa. I mean, we're talking the top 0.01% of America. She's the smartest lady, like brilliant type of lady. And she was giving a talk on how to have confidence. She said one of the big things she had to struggle through was coming to terms with who she was because she was no longer as great as she thought she was. And she had no true hope she just said, well, you just have to fake it till you make it. And it's interesting that God's redeeming truth says, no, look, God has designed you this way. He's made you how you are. He's made you with the limited resources that you have. He's given you the amount of intellect that you have. He's not made you smarter for a reason. He's not made you more handsome for a reason. He's not made you more gifted for a reason. It frees us up to think of ourselves accurately, not too highly. It also frees us up from thinking of ourselves too lowly. All right, many of us struggle with that too highly side of things where we, we think we are just the bee's knees, right? We're the best thing ever. Some of us, however, are on that other extreme where we wrestle with finding our place at all and feeling like we have no voice in the church, having no place in the church and no need in the church. We feel useless. We feel extraneous. We feel extra. We feel like that bit of fat that's kind of left over after the steak that's kind of like, yeah, I'll pass on the gristle, thanks. And the reality of the matter, again, is that this frees us up by God's redeeming mercy to think of ourselves accurately, not too highly of ourselves, but also not too lowly. That everyone is given gifts. We heard that in Psalm 68. We have it quoted in Ephesians 4. We already read those. Everyone is given gifts. They are part of Christ's victory parade. He is currently now having his victory parade throughout creation. And everywhere he goes, when he sees his people, he throws spiritual gifts to them that they receive and adopt as part of who they are. And all of those gifts are important and given for an exact reason. None of them are wasted. To say that you don't have a place because you don't have the gifts or because you're not useful, or because you're not valuable, is in essence to say that you know better than God, because he designed you the way that he did on purpose. To be displeased with who we are in some sense, and the gifts that we have, is to rebel against the Lord, because he made us this way. He made me this tall. He made me with the gifts that I have. I need to quit complaining against those and embrace them by the redeeming work of the Lord. Well, it doesn't stop there. 
Right? It empowers us to think accurately, but not just to think accurately, but it empowers us to live distinctly, to live differently, to live uniquely. Hear what happens. We're, verse 3, we're challenged to think of ourselves uh, accurately with sober judgment according to the gifts that God has given, to the faith that God has given. Verse 4 and 5 is the explanation of that. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we... Though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace that is given to us. The design is for us to all be different. It's important that it's all different. The church functions best when she is at her most diverse. Resting in God's redeeming grace that Jesus has indeed conquered and is giving the correct gifts to his church, it gives us the freedom to embrace the way that everyone is made. To embrace those of other nationalities. To embrace those of other skin tones. To embrace those with different eye color or different hair texture or whatever. Who cares? We have the ability to embrace all of God's people together. And to embrace that diversity, to not marginalize it, to not remove it, to not say that anyone is extra or wasted. This is one thing that bothers me tremendously about the American church is that we have watched really since 1969 in American culture, a new idol has arisen in America. Uh, not one that you're probably thinking of. In 1969, we begin to see sexuality elevated in a way that we've not actually experienced before. We get to see inside the church, family is elevated. But the real problem that has arisen from all of this is that youth has been elevated. After 1969, American culture began to take the ideal age and begin to drop it systematically year by year by year by year by year. Whereas the 50s, It was ideal to be an older person because you had gained all of the respect and all of the wisdom of having made many trips around the sun and having lived long enough to survive it, right? You have at least not made dumb enough decisions to end your trips around the sun early. That should get you some respect. Well, in the 60s show up and we begin to value not those that have respect and gray hair and age, but we begin to move that down. And then now in our age with the rise of consumerism, the average most respected age is like 13 because it has the largest percentage of expendable income in America. We love our teenagers. They run our country because they control the wallets of their parents. We've elevated youth to our new idol, and in doing so, sometimes in many places, some of those that are less young, more trips around the sun, feel marginalized. They feel like they don't matter. They feel like they're no longer important because we think of beauty as being young. We think of excitement as being young. We think of happiness as being young. We think of everything good as being young, and particularly those that have lived long enough to make it around the sun realize that that's not ideal, right? I mean... Romeo and Juliet, Juliet was a 13-year-old girl. Uh, I think the idea, the epitome of love should not be a 13-year-old girl. Uh, Nothing more fickle in all of creation than a 13-year-old girl dealing with her idea of love. Like, we don't want this, right? We we want the maturity that comes with it. Okay. Uh, God's redeeming grace empowers us to actually embrace the different callings that we have and to live those out. 
To not try to be someone else. To not try to capture that preteen joy, that preteen shine, and to retain that with us all the way through our lives, but to embrace who we are and how we're made. God has designed this. He's designed the church this way. It's one body with different parts. And you think about it this way. What would happen in a body if all of the parts were suddenly identical? Well, it's not a very good, not a very good body, right? I mean, let's say all the parts suddenly miraculously all turn to skin at the exact same time. That's actually disgusting, isn't it? Just a pile of bads. That's nasty. Or if it all turned to bones simultaneously. Well, that's skeletons. We don't want that, right? We have that in Ezekiel. Those bones need to rise to life. That's not what bodies are designed to be. They need to have all of the parts and all of the pieces. What happens to the body if all the parts are the same? Well, it ceases to be a body, doesn't it? It's no good. We need our young. We need our less young. Some of you might call them old. We need ours as well. Right? We need our single. We need our married. We need our children. We need our newlyweds. We need, we need all of God's people together. And we need to freely embrace all of those callings. The other thing to kind of contemplate in regards to this is as we embrace all of the, the distinctness of who we are, is also to think about it from the bodies, the, the part of the body, the actual individual parts perspective. What happens to an individual part of the body when it is removed from the body? It dies and dies very quickly, doesn't it? Right? If we're suddenly miraculously to have my gallbladder sitting right here on top of the, uh, well, that would be nasty, but it would be a dead gallbladder very quickly, right? You would probably not be able to get me back to the doctor quickly enough to get it back in my body correctly. The same idea happens in the church where when we see people that are like, well, my part's not important. My, my function in the church isn't important. My, my calling isn't important. I don't seem like I can offer as much to the church. Therefore, I'll go back by myself. I'll just remove myself. I'll take myself away from the body. And that's bad for that part of the body. It also tends to usually be incredibly bad for the body as a whole, isn't it? Yeah. I have a friend who periodic- he has an autoimmune disease where periodically his mouth decides that it no longer wants to be a part of his body and it rejects it. Like the mouth just rejects the body and the body rejects the mouth. Not good, right? It kind of tends to be fatal if it's not treated, both for the body and for the mouth. The church is designed to have this diversity and this unity together and in doing so it should give us Freedom. And then lastly, is it, it gives us God's redeeming grace, empowers us to function according to our calling, function according to our gifts. He builds that in 6 through 8 where he says, all right, in, court, uh, sorry, in a, having all these get, different gifts that God has given, let us use them. So these gifts aren't given for an academic exercise. They're not given to determine value, right? You have a teaching gift. You're more valuable than everybody else. You have the gift of prayer. You're the most important. Not to determine value. These gifts are given to be used. And he goes, look, if you got the gift of prophecy, use it. The gift of teaching, use it. The gift of giving, use it. The gift of mercy, use it. Don't retain these gifts for yourself. This is a gift that's designed to be given away, to be employed for the church. 
we uh, have some sense of understanding this is kind of intuitively right you remember the story not too long ago about the uh, medicine company uh, that they found a new uh, treatment for some disease i forget which disease it was that had made a tremendous breakthrough in treating it and when they made their tremendous breakthrough they raised their price by 500 times so medicine that was a dollar a pill before went to 500 dollars a pill before And nothing had changed other than they recognized the value of what they had. And everybody got up in arms like, ah, we hate this medicine company. They're evil. They're an abomination. They don't understand that the gifts they've been given need to be used for others' benefits. And yet how often in the church do we hoard our own gifts? Recognizing that your gifts, whatever they are, are designed for the benefit of the people in this room. They've been given by the Lord as part of his victory over death and hell forever, and they are given that we might enjoy one another. At resting in God's miraculous, redeeming truth, we can use our gifts. Well, all right, application, what do we do with this? Well, first, obviously, go use your gifts. Well, secondly, some people immediately go, well, I would, but I don't know what they are. I don't know what my gifts are. I don't know how to serve. I don't know what to do. Well, I'll tell you the easiest way to figure out your gifts. This is actually the easiest way. I I promise it's the best way ever. Use them and figure it out afterwards. Right? Once you start using gifts, you will find out very quickly, oh, I'm actually pretty decent at that, or, ooh, I'm really bad at that. Right? Now, it'll take a little bit of failure, a little bit of success, but you'll figure out exactly what you're good at. But the good thing is that Jesus has empowered you to do that. But most of all, is to see this as what the previous verses have called. Right? Flip back, just in, if you're in my copy, it's verses 1 and 2, the page before. Therefore, here's the big deal, in light of the gospel, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, By that testing that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, what this is, is the the use of your gifts, whether you are six years old in this church or 96 years old in this church, the use of your gifts is you presenting yourself to God as a living sacrifice. That is you participating in the worship of God. And I would just gently say that if you think of your gifts more highly than you ought, you will most likely think of your God more lowly than you ought. And if you think of your gifts as too lowly than you ought, you will still think of your God too lowly than you ought. Using your gifts, whatever they are. Some of you have a good idea. Some of you I have absolutely no idea. No idea how to use you in the church. But God does. And he's designed that for you as a way to glorify God in spiritual worship. If you think your gifts are unimportant, first I would say you're absolutely wrong. There is nothing further from the truth. You are absolutely vital to this church. And primarily because you get to worship when you do it. And that is great preparation for heaven. 
You see, we're at crisis as a nation. A crisis of identity, a crisis of voice, a crisis of how we get to interact together. And it's interesting that even the pagan sociologists are beginning to say so much of our national crisis is a reflection of our religious crisis. We have lost the idea that the church exists as one body with many members. And they are all necessary. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we see these gifts, not that they are our gifts, not that they are uh, inherent to who we are, and we are so special and important. We thank you that these are the gifts of Christ. He has given them. He could take them away if he wished at any time. Likewise, he could take us away, take me away. Thank you for your mercy. We ask that in light of the gospel, in light of your faithful promises, that you would help us to use our gifts to your glory and to the good of the church, whatever those gifts may be, whether they be public or private, whether they be great or small, that you would use all of us for your honor. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.